Good morning. Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts chapter 25, verses 23, right through to chapter 26, verse 32. As this is God's word to us, we want to hear from him and not from Steve. And we're going to call upon him in prayer that his word might have its work in and through us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is living and active, that all of it is useful for training in righteousness, for correction, and that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Our Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough that you have not only given us the word by which we may be saved, but by how we can respond to you and relate to you. So build us up, transform us, change us, challenge us, help us to love and adore you with our whole hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1800s, there was a Bishop Wright who believed that people don't fly. That is the domain of the angels. Leave it to the angels. Yet on December 17, 1902, his eldest son flew the first ever powered plane ever in history. Sure, it was only 12 seconds of flight at a height of 36 metres, but what his dad had said was crazy became reality. In the same vein, Christopher Columbus. As he was about to set sail to discover the unknown, people thought he was mad. They thought he was going to go crashing off the end of the earth. In fact, the coins that were produced at that time would have inscripted on the words, no more beyond. But as Christopher Columbus returned, those coins were inscripted with a new inscription saying, More Beyond. You see, what some people or even the majority of people might think is foolishness or craziness may actually be reality and truth. The amount of volume in opposition to something is not a measure of how truthful or untruthful something is. Since we've returned to the book of Acts this year, we've seen a lot of Paul being placed under trial. Paul has been someone whose point of view regarding Jesus Christ risen from the dead put him in the camp of being a minority, one upon whom so many thought he was crazy, out of his mind. That's even said about him in our reading that we've looked at today. They've said this Paul, he's against the Jews, He's against the law of Moses, against the customs of the Jews, and even against the temple itself. So far, they've found his claims so offensive, so crazy, that they have demanded a sentence of death. We see that described in, in Acts chapter 25, verse 15. But after so many trials, still there are no charges. Even last week, we saw... Festus was surprised. Here they are wanting a sentence of death, but they've got nothing. They're bringing so little to the table to formulate anything by way of a case. Now, Paul is a Roman citizen. He's appealed to Caesar. He says, I want my case to be heard before the emperor. And he's entitled to do so as a Roman citizen. But it left Festus in a difficult position. If we've had all of these trials and there still isn't, a legal case against Paul, what on earth 
Do I write to Caesar to say what this man's on trial for? So he was probably overjoyed when King Agrippa arrives on the scene. Someone who understands Judaism, he thought, now we can figure this all out, get to the bottom of it once and for all. And even though this is not officially a trial, of all of the times when Paul is questioned, this is probably one of my favourites, and we'll see why as we unpack this passage. We're going to look at it in this sense. In 25 verses 23 to 27, asking the question of guilty of what? Then in chapter 26 verses 1 to 11, we see how Paul begins with a common future hope that he shares even with his opponents. Then in verses 12 to 23 of chapter 26, we see that this hope Paul proclaims has arrived already. And so we finish and is Paul deluded? So what is he guilty of? Now this Agrippa, his role, he is the curate of the temple. He's in a position by which he can appoint the high priest. He's quite high up from a Jewish point of view. As he was discussing things with Festus, he's quite keen to hear from this guy. He wants to hear Paul for himself. And so they gather on this big event and they arrive in the language I quite like with great pomp. They arrive in all of their robes, all of the military are there. They're trying to put on a big show. Uh, we are mighty and we are powerful. Now Agrippa, he's a high standing man in terms of Judaism, by title at least. But he's also morally corrupt. He's arriving here with Bernice, his sister, who it's believed that he's actually in an incestuous relationship with. But before anything gets underway, there's no doubt why this gathering is taking place. Read with me in verses 26 to 27. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I might have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. In other words, presently Festus says, I've got nothing on this guy. My hope in gathering us here today is I can have something, some reason to give towards Caesar as to why he is even got to hear out this case for Paul. And as Paul is given an opportunity to speak, where he begins is a place where even his opponents are united with him with regards to a common future hope. Even though things are presently hostile towards Paul, there was a time in Paul's life when he would have been a hero of the Jews. He would have been the, the poster boy. And so Paul begins by talking about that former Paul, the one whom they would have loved the one who describes himself and presents himself as a Pharisee, one of those Jews who took the law of God to the utmost degree. He was a serious law-abiding Jew. His hope is to establish that the same Paul that they once loved and agreed with 100% and held up as a hero, what he is doing now that they're opposed to is a legitimate continuation and extension of the same Paul which they once loved. Paul seems to delight that Agrippa is here on the scene. 
at last, someone who understands the ins and outs of Judaism, someone who understands the things that we're talking about, not like Felix or Festus, the governors beforehand. And how Paul presents himself is as a Pharisee and as a one who shares and believes and desires the hope that has been promised to the forefathers, like all of the other Jews do. That's what he says in verse 6. But what is the hope? What is the promise to the fathers to which he has speaking of a hope? Well, Acts chapter 13, Paul specifically tells us what is the hope promised to the fathers. So flip back to Acts chapter 13, reading from verses 32 through to 39. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the hope that Paul is on trial for. This is the hope that every true Jew would see in the scriptures and they would long for, they would hope for. That one day that there would be a future resurrection. That one day coming, there would be a promised Messiah, that is, a king from the line of David, who would sit on the throne of David forever, who would free and save God's people. They were totally agreed with all of those points. The point of contention was this. Paul believed and was proclaiming that Jesus is the one descended from David who has risen from the dead, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, who is reigning, who has that everlasting kingdom, who has set their people free from their sin, who has forgiven them in a way in which the law of Moses never could. This is what Paul is on trial for, that Jesus is that Messiah, the promised saviour of the people of God. Now, in verses 9 to 10, Paul openly admits that there was a stage in his own life where he thought someone to believe the things that he now stands for were blasphemous, worthy of death. So he's got the same foundation as his opponents. He has the same future hope as his opponents. He once had the same opposition to the teaching about Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of that hope. So what has changed? Why is it that he now proclaims this hope has arrived? While Paul was expressing his hostility and 
hate towards this blasphemous teaching that Jesus was risen from the dead, that he was the long-awaited Messiah. He'd travelled 190 kilometres to Damascus for the set purpose of arresting people and having them imprisoned. That's like Toowoomba to Burley Heads by foot. That was his passion. That's how much he opposed these things. Yet while he was on that journey, we know because we've read through it in previous chapters before us as it's been recounted, he encountered the risen Jesus Christ. There was a flash of light around him and Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as Paul asks the question, who, who are you, Lord? He has learned that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who's been persecuting by inference, by persecuting Christians, followers of Jesus. He was persecuting Jesus himself, who had risen from the dead, who was the long-awaited Messiah, the king who would sit on his David's throne forever. But there's also one aspect here in Acts chapter 26 that we don't read in any of the other accounts on the road to Damascus. We read here in verse 14, Jesus asks in addition to Paul, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Goads? What on earth is a goad? It's a farming implement. It was a long wooden beam that had spikes on the end of it. As you were driving along your oxen, it would guide them in the direction in which they were to go. If they were to resist or to go off course, the, the spike would stick into them. So effectively, Jesus is saying to Paul, has it been hard? Has it been hard with everything that I've laid before you in the scriptures? Everything that you have seen and heard? Everything that's pointing you towards the reality that Jesus actually was risen, yet you are resisting it? Has it been hard? And this same Paul, who once resisted the prompting and leading of God, will later turn to his opponents in this exchange and ask the same question of them. Is it hard for you to resist this God when everything is so clearly laid out before you? Now, on the previous accounts on the road to Damascus, a lot of the focus has been upon Paul's conversion. But in Acts chapter 26, the focus is more upon his commissioning, which are not really two separate events. I mean, you are converted, which you become a child of God. You become united with Christ. And by nature of your union with Christ, you enter into the mission of Christ. And look at the way in which this mission is described, verses 16 to 18. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Now we shouldn't read those words of Jesus promising to deliver him both from Jews and Gentiles as being a, an everlasting promise of protection, but rather that every single attempt on behalf of both Jew and Gentile to attack to take the life of Paul could not take place until such point in which God had achieved all of his purposes through the Apostle Paul. 
But look at the mission and the way in which Jesus speaks about Paul's mission and by implication also our mission. Even though we are not exactly the same as Paul, we are not God's chosen instrument to the Gentiles, but our mission and our message is the same. Now, as a Christian, that language of bearing witness to Jesus isn't foreign at all. As we've gone through Acts, we see that right back in the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when my spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Nothing unusual about that. And there's nothing particularly foreign about the next lot of language either. The idea that we would open the eyes of the blind. That we turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the, to the power of God. But sometimes it's just so familiar hearing those language that we go, yeah, I know, yeah, I know. But I found I just needed to slow that down to really fully absorb what's being said here. He says, the people who you are, your mission is towards are a people who are blind in darkness, under the power of Satan. Like so often when we think, oh yeah, we've got a mission. Who looks like the most likely person to respond? Who are the low-hanging fruit, the easy targets? Yet Jesus' words to Paul was, you will make the blind see. Not the ones who are a bit hazy on their side. You will bring people from darkness, not just near the light and around the fringes, from darkness into the light. Even people from the power of Satan himself to the power of God. Now, this isn't Paul's specific exclusive ministry. This is what God's Holy Spirit in his people does. What he did through Paul and what he desires to do through all of Jesus' followers. That we would be calling people to open their eyes from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. That the end result, that the blind would see, from darkness and out of the power of Satan, they would come to know forgiveness of sins and would be named alongside those who are being sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul was persistent. Now, if you got a real got a grasp of that, that the Holy Spirit was within you to bring about sight to the blind, darkness to the light, the power of Satan to the power of God, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't there be zeal? Why wouldn't there be confidence? Paul was so confident in this heavenly vision, he says, and so I went. I preach repentance and forgiveness to all Jews and Gentiles. This is the very reason by which he's on trial at this moment. But the underlying reasons of what he proclaimed aren't new ideas. He says, these things I'm on trial for, these things I proclaim, are nothing more than the hope promised by Moses and the prophets. He speaks specifically of three things. Firstly, that Christ must suffer. We see that throughout the, the laws of Moses, through various different sacrificial systems. The New Testament writers pick up and speak of Jesus as being our Passover lamb. 
in John chapter 3, verse 14, where it says, Just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, we read about in Numbers chapter 21, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that all must who look upon him will believe and live. Even we see that in Isaiah chapter 53, the servant song, the one who would suffer. This was foretold would happen in the Old Testament scriptures. It was also foretold that the Christ would rise from the dead. Last week, Samuel took us through Psalm chapter 16 and verses 9 to 10 makes it very clear. Your Holy One will not see corruption. We see the same again, Isaiah 53 verse 10. And the third thing he says, which the Moses and the prophets spoke about, is that he would proclaim a light to the Gentiles, which we see in the servant songs of Isaiah in 42, 6 and 49, verse 6. Remember how Jesus had that exchange with those guys on the way back to Emmaus? And he said, it was necessary that the Christ must, be, must suffer must die and be raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he opened up the scriptures to explain from the, from the Moses, from the writings and from the prophets, all of the things that had to be fulfilled and spoke about Jesus. Paul's not teaching something new. He's not teaching something foreign to the teaching which his, even his opponents were familiar with. Rather, what he is saying is the Old Testament hope, the Old Testament promises that we all longed and looked forward to have arrived in Jesus Christ. Now, even Festus thought Paul had lost the plot. Now, let's face it, Paul's not the first Christian nor the last who will be considered to be crazy for the things which he said. Festus acknowledges that he was a smart man, but believes that maybe he's Learning's gone that little bit too far that it's that's done his mind in. And I've encountered people who've got PhDs in theology that have got some whack ideas. To Festus, Paul says this, My words are both true and rational. Just like the Wright brothers, just like Christopher Columbus, just because some people think it's crazy doesn't mean it's not true and rational. But it's his exchange with Agrippa, Agrippa II that is, that I enjoy the most. It's not so much an exchange about Paul's innocence. Paul has taken this opportunity as an opportunity to share the gospel, but to appeal even to the king Agrippa for response to the gospel. He says, King you know these things to be true. These things, things haven't happened in a dark corner. Jesus Christ was crucified. Everyone knows about that. It was a public event. We all know he was buried. He was risen from the dead. Lots of people have seen it. We're told in 1 Corinthians that on one occasion, more than 500 people witnessed Jesus Christ had risen. All of the things which he had read in the scriptures point to the exact types of things which Paul is now proclaiming. And Paul says to him, you know these things. You believe the prophets, don't you, king? He's kind of put him into a bit of a corner here, hasn't he? You believe the prophets, don't you? But Agrippa has quite a clever way of responding, kind of putting it back on Paul. And this is my favourite page of all of the exchange, verses 28 and 29. Agrippa says to Paul, 
In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What a bold response in speaking to the king. When he says, do you think you're going to make me a Christian in this short exchange? Paul's response is short or long. Actually, not just even you, anyone who I who hears or anyone who I might ever interact with. My goal, my heart, my desire is not about a, a time frame. It's about an outcome that a people would be saved. They would be set free from their sin. So whether that happens in a short exchange, which sometimes you hear about people come to faith through a very short dialogue or conversation, but whether it's going for the long haul, the stakes are so high. He says, my heart's desire for you, Agrippa, and for everyone is that you would turn from your sin. You would turn to the living God. Knowing that the Holy Spirit living within Paul is the same one who will open blind eyes, turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And knowing that power within, he says, that's what I live for every day, every one. So this was supposed to be a gathering to figure out what are the charges against Paul. So how does it end up? Well, verses 31 to 32 says, When they'd withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. There's a unanimous decision. This guy's done nothing deserving death or any form of punishment. And if he hadn't asked to have his case heard before Caesar, we would have let him go. But whether it's because God had called him to it, or Paul was mindful of that, or God was just directing these affairs in that direction. He'd already said to Paul in, in chapter 23, verse 11, you will bear witness about me in Rome, as he does shortly before the emperor. So in wrapping up, crazy is caring. Now we've all heard the expression, caring is sharing. Usually the idea of, or you get a sickness from someone, caring is sharing, or you know, someone's eating something, you take a bite, caring is sharing. Um, it's probably not a phrase that's being used a lot at the moment during this COVID-19 situation. But everyone who'd heard Paul at this point in time had thought he's off his rocker. He's crazy, he's lost the plot. But we've learned from the example of the Wright brothers and Christopher Columbus that just because people think something is crazy doesn't mean it's not true and rational. Sometimes reality is the very things that people think are ridiculous. Paul acknowledges this when he speaks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, for the word of the cross, that is the message about Jesus' death on the cross, it's folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Same message. Some hear it as foolishness, ridiculous. But to others who receive it as truth, it's the power of God for salvation. Paul could look a gripper in the eye and say, you know, you know this is true. 
And there's a sense in which the Bible tells us we can say to anyone whom we interact with, that you know that there is a God of eternal power. Look what we read from Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You hear that? Every single person that you ever interact with in your life knows that there is a God of eternal power. How do you know that? Well, you know it because God says he has made it plainly known to them. Now, they might deny that because they may have suppressed it so much that it's not even in their memory banks. But deep down, it's in there. They know there is a God of eternal power who has made it known to them. And you, brothers and sisters, have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within you that dwelt within Paul, that is able to make the blind see, to call people from darkness to light, out of the power of Satan to the power of God. Hasn't that got to encourage you? Hasn't that got to embolden you to bear witness to Jesus, knowing that power that is made available to you is the same power that was made available to Paul? Because it wasn't about Paul. In the same sense, it's not about you. It's about the power of God in his gospel. Or perhaps you're in another camp. Perhaps you're someone who's still investigating Jesus. You're you're sort of trying to figure out what this is all about. There's something about it that's attracting you. You're inquisitive. It's maybe even got to be a suspicion. Maybe there's something in it. Can I say something to you from one former goad kicker to another? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Is it hard for you to resist everything that God has laid before you that, that points you to the reality that Jesus Christ, the Savior, has died the death that we deserve to die for our rebellion against God was raised from the dead. And by him, there is salvation in his name, forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. It breaks our heart to know there are some who would prefer to stay in blindness, in darkness. And even though you're unaware under the power of Satan. It's a strange expression, isn't it? You so often hear people say, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to serve any God on my own person. But God's message is, by not being free, by not coming to Christ, you already are serving someone. You're not your own man. You're serving. You're under the power of Satan. And so my appeal to you would be to turn to Jesus, turn from your sin, to be set free from your slavery to darkness, to be free from darkness, to be free from the power of Satan, to come to know the Saviour, the good and perfect loving Saviour, who is not only your hope for this life, but the life for all eternity.
Don't kick against the goads. Come to him in faith, I ask in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Paul had a confidence to speak so boldly. Not because he was an articulate public speaker, but because he realized who was at work within him and how good the good news is and what it potentially could do in the lives of those who would hear it. Lord, give us a confidence in your message of what you have done in Christ. And for any who are still not so sure where they stand with you, that they might turn to and be set free from darkness, the power of Satan, to be united with the perfect Son of God who laid down his life for us, to forgive us, to make us and adopt us as children of God, equally co-heirs with Christ, who will go to live with you for all eternity, either when we die, when Christ comes again. We give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.